This episode of The Dig is brought to you by our listeners who support us at Patreon.com and by Verso Books, which has loads of great left-wing titles, perfect for Dig listeners like you. One that you might like is the 2019 Verso Radical Diary and Weekly Planner, a stylish diary filled with radical historical dates from across the world. The 2019 Verso Radical Diary is a beautifully designed week-to-view planner where you can keep track of the year ahead. Alongside illustrations and book excerpts, it features significant radical dates from throughout history, including the English Civil War and Black Panther movement, through to the protests of 1968 and feminist emancipation, touching on the lives of revolutionaries such as Angela Davis, Rosa Luxemburg, and Martin Luther King Jr. The 2019 edition includes illustrations from Savage Messiah, Laura Oldfield Ford's brilliant psychogeographic graphic novel, as well as extracts from brand new Verso books, including Revolting Prostitutes, New Dark Age, and Paradise Rot. The 2019 Verso Radical Diary and Weekly Planner, out now from none other than Verso Books. Welcome to The Dig, a podcast from Jacobin Magazine. My name is Daniel Denver, and I'm broadcasting from Providence, Rhode Island. The Trump administration and affiliated fossil fuel industry-aligned conservatives have pit working-class prosperity against environmentalism. This, of course, is incredibly dangerous. It's also premised on a misreading of environmental politics as having nothing to do with human well-being. But climate change, of course, threatens not only non-human nature, but the entirety of human life that is fundamentally dependent on it. Right now, coastal homes and cities, agriculture, wildfire-prone forests, and the water supply are all under threat. And so an ecologically sustainable response to this crisis must definitionally also be a socially and economically just one. Something like a Green New Deal a broad vision that climate activists and left insurgent politicians are uniting behind. My guest today, climate reporter Kate Aronoff, is going to tell us all about it, as well as about the general state of domestic and global climate politics. Before we get started, I'm going to make this super quick because I have to run out of the studio and then out of town for the holidays in just a minute. Please, take a moment to support this podcast at patreon.com slash the dig. If you listen to this podcast and like this podcast, we can give this content to you for free only because you freely choose to support us. So please, if you haven't already, press pause and contribute what you can at p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash the dig. Thank you, happy holidays, and here is Kate Aronoff a contributing writer at The Intercept covering climate change in American politics, an editor of a forthcoming anthology about democratic socialism in America, and the author of a forthcoming book about climate change, tentatively titled The New Denialism. Kate Aronoff, welcome back to The Dig. Thanks for having me. I want to start this interview off the way you begin your intercept piece on the Green New Deal by painting a utopian picture of what one woman's life after a just green transition might look like. Tell me about Gina's life in the mid-21st century and why you thought it was important to open a lengthy, policy-heavy article with a utopian narrative. Gina is kind of a a hypothetical person born hopefully around where we are now. Um, So, you know, 2018 or the next two, three years, maybe 2020, which is a date we can we can talk about in a little bit. But uh, she is graduating college around 2040s and has had a fairly easy upbringing. So her parents each got to take um, a year of paid family leave. They both took part of that. Her college was free. She did a a year of public service between um, high school and 
going to college. That involved working in a daycare and doing environmental remediation work, um, about half and half, so six months or so each. And now she's, you know, sort of deciding what to do with her life. And she has a lot of options available. She studied engineering, so she um, will probably go to work for a solar um, solar farm of some some sort as kind of a high level engineer. Um, but you know, even if she didn't have that training, um, any number of American job centers around the country could set her up um, with sort of well paid work, much of it very unionized, doing work to benefit her community. So that's everything from um, doing you know similar similar sorts of environmental re- remediation work, kind of making cities um, more resilient to uh, the impacts of climate change, which are already locked in. That might also mean, you know, getting some sort of specialized training to do something like uh, nursing or teaching, which are um, low-carbon uh, careers already that we kind of know, we know what they look like. Um, might also involve doing oral history projects, sort of taking a time to sort of sit down and, and talk to folks in her community who want to have their sort of lives and experiences recorded for historical record. Her healthcare will be provided. Um, she won't have to worry about that. Uh, for housing, she'll live in any number of um, sort of beautiful uh, public housing units, which don't look much like we understand public housing today in the United States, unfortunately, um, but something closer you know, to the kind of social housing they have in Vienna, sort of beautifully designed, in this case, you know, potentially the country's best architects will sort of compete to for the privilege to design them. So these spaces featuring, you know, not just sort of very uh, beautiful units, probably better than most of what certainly my friends are used to living in in Crown Heights today, and certainly more affordable than that. They will be rent controlled, um, but also feature, you know, things like kindergartens and daycare centers, um, bars and restaurants, like luxurious public spaces. Um, for people to kind of inhabit and, and sort of have, you know, live up to the the mandate of social housing. As we know it, there's, of course, you know, high-speed rail in her city and plenty of opportunities to enjoy, you know, other places, enjoy the things around her um, because she's, you know, not working anything sort of close to a 40-hour week, this sort of antiquated, bizarre concept. Um, it's a relic of, of the early 20th, 21st century And so that leaves plenty of time, you know, for visiting friends in other cities, going out with friends, enjoying long sort of luxuriant meals, you know, all of this sort of without having to worry about the the types of things people today, you know, worry about um, a lot, um, unfortunately. So, you know, power bills, paying paying utility bills, um, all of that is sort of is free um, in part because our public housing complex um, has solar panels on the roof so that gives you know all the power that her and her neighbors need and more things like broadband um, fast wi-fi are also provided and not you know just in sort of cities if that's where gina happens to live but sort of all over the country um, where today wi-fi remains sort of a a challenge Um, similar to that clean water is is free and 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 uh, available to everyone the kind of horrific environmental injustices that are um, today so prevalent in places, you know, most notably Flint, Michigan, but um, also several other cities and places around the country are a thing of the past. And as Gina gets older, she, uh, as we mentioned, will have healthcare provided, but also things like sort of compassionate nursing care. She lives alone. Um, a federal job guarantee will sort of set people up to come visit her and spend time. But uh, again, sort of the design of her housing and just sort of the design of cities um, and towns these days is sort of such that um, people are, you know, in community more often and, and are not sort of siloed in the ways that we're, we're kind of horrifically used to uh, people being siloed in their everyday life. <laughs> that all sounds really, really lovely, but somewhat different from the trajectory that we seem to have been on and heading down for quite a while. Why open with this utopian narrative? Yeah, so I, I wrote the, you know, I set out to write this sort of long piece about the Green New Deal, right, and get a, getting into the policy weeds of what that would mean. It, 
has yet to be totally defined, right, which is great. The, the New Deal itself wasn't totally defined when uh, the first sort of package of bills was, was put into law. Um, but I, I think part of the intention of doing that was just to paint a picture for how fundamentally different life would be and not so, you know, not so different than things we already know, right? This is not so far into the vision to folks who live in Scandinavia, for instance. That's not the, not the perfect model, but certainly closer. That's, that's closer to what, what Gina's life, as I just described, is than, than we have here. Um, and I think one of the main reasons, too, is because when we talk about a Green New Deal, the images that come to mind are often of sort of men hoisting up wind turbines and solar panels, this kind of very productivist notion of um, what the future will look like, sort of, you know, manufacturing and, and the kinds of jobs we sort of typically understand as green jobs, um, which is, of course, all part of it. But I actually think it's a pretty narrow part of what a Green New Deal would look like, which is really sort of reimagining what life looks like and, and imagining what uh, a low carbon world would be like, which involves, you know, upending some very serious parts of what to date has been a carbon intensive economy and an economic system, which has been built root to branch around around fossil fuels. So just trying to, to kind of flesh out, you know, what, what does a world look like in which we have um, upended the power of the fossil fuel industry in a way that's not, you know, either the kind of apocalyptic vision I think we get of climate change world, right? Like Gina's world is not one where the climate isn't changing. We're already locked in for about one degree of warming and, and some change. Um, so, you know, this is all taking place in the context of um, changing weather, of, of um, rising temperatures, sort of more extreme weather, hopefully less of that than we'll, than we'll get otherwise, but also corrective, not just to that sort of apocalyptic narrative that we see so often um, when we talk about climate change, but also the idea that people have to give something up if we're, if we're going to take on this problem. So this is not sort of a world defined by kind of immense sacrifice and people living sort of austere lives within their means. Um, it's actually just more beautiful. And that's sort of consistent with, with what scientists are saying, right? Is that, you know, a very small percentage of, of the global population is responsible for outrageous amount of the emissions. I mean, with corporations, that picture is even more stark. About seven. Uh, 100 corporations are responsible for 71% of emissions since 1980, 1988. And so just the uh, the idea that like we're all sort of um, playing some huge part in driving this process forward is is absurd, right? It's like the we know who's causing the problem. They have names and addresses. Um, and if we upend them, you know, we can spread resources out more equitably to the people. We don't have a problem of sort of scarce resources. We have a problem of too many resources being hoarded um, by too few people. And if we make a decision as a society to spread them out, we can you know, create a world that's both fairer and, and more democratic, but also that saves us from cooking. And, and part of it, the scarcity is a scarcity of imagination because this issue more than perhaps any other requires utopian thinking as I think like a tool to break out of this box of kind of narrow horizons and pessimism that neoliberalism has placed us within and from which we'll never be able to think big enough to act big enough to confront the threat of, of climate change. I mean, I don't even think it's particularly utopian, right? I mean, not utopian in the sense that sort of it's like that's used as a slur often. People have previews of this in, in other places. I think we, you know, living in New York City, we have like some previews of this. We have like a sometimes functional public transit system. Um, <laughs> ideally, would some version of it exist in, in other places as well um, and be much more funded than Andrew Cuomo's MTA. But yeah, I mean, I think the real utopia of, is the sort of coming from the right and coming from the, the sort of fossil fuel industry and their donors and the whole sort of network of people who are eager to do absolutely nothing about climate change, which is that we can just sort of continue living the lives that we're living and not face sort of apocalyptic consequences. Um, and, you know, that's far more hard to imagine it's much harder to imagine what we have now sort of continuing indefinitely into the future than it is to imagine sort of rewriting our relationship to the earth in ways that are not terribly complicated. Like we know what, what that'll take. I think that the, the type of stuff that I, you know, just, just laid out and spend some time talking about in the beginning of the piece 
is really, you know, it's it's like written in a kind of way to, to you know, get people's sort of imaginations going. But um, I don't think anything in there is, is is really sort of crazy far off stuff. I mean, the the when I when I published this piece, some of the reaction I got <laughs> from folks in Scandinavia was like, "Wow, this just sounds like um, my life." Actually, uh, <laughs> so you know, it's 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 really. Um, I think we should, if we're going to use the word utopia, I think we should maybe do even a little higher. Maybe I should have just thought of Norway instead of thinking of Ursula Le Guin's The Dispossessed when I read <laughs> well, that. Well, yeah, I, I was actually just in Norway for a day or two. And, you know, ideally, um, the social democracy cannot be built on oil wealth and uh, or racially homogenous, which are, you know, two enormous sort of gaping holes in seeing like the, the Nordic and Scandinavian model as a, as a model. Let's talk about the the Green New Deal as a concept and a, a vision. How is it developed and how so quickly in recent weeks has it seemed to gain so much traction kind of seemingly overnight, at, at least on the left? Yeah. So the Green New Deal is an idea which goes um, sort of roughly back to the Great Recession. The first, uh, and I you know, would want to double check this, but but have it on kind of good authority, um, that the first mention of this was actually in a column written by Tom Friedman, New York Times, (laughs) (laughs) of all people. Um, But some of the biggest thinking about it early on um, was done by a group of economists and researchers in the UK who kind of met in the aftermath of the the global financial crisis um, to try to figure out, you know, what would it look like to come out of this crisis and also to have a more sustainable relationship to the planet. Um, and so they wrote a series of white papers, sort of convened some, convened some other people on it. And of course, like the UK and, and most of Europe and, you know, to a, a sort of different extent, the US are about to be kind of gripped by sort of total austerity. And so that took over very quickly after they started meeting. So it was in the U.S. around that time as well. I think the the sort of most famous person to be sort of pushing for this kind of approach was Van Jones, who had the title of like Green Job Czar. And was unceremoniously booted from the Obama administration. Yes, yes, was was quickly sort of ousted. The Green Party has also been talking about, uh, in the U.S., has also been talking about uh, the Green New Deal for a bit uh, as well. Yeah, and it's always been something that kind of gets like returned back to in mostly pretty small conversations about people who think a lot about climate change. Um, so, you know, like me and my friends who, who do kind of work on this front, we're talking about a green new deal before it <laughs> became cool again, uh, I guess, which is to say everyone who was talking about it that I know is just beyond thrilled, uh, that it's being talked about now. Um, so why is it, why is it being talked about now? The, main reason is that there was a sit-in organized by um, this, this millennial-led uh, organization. Millennial and younger, actually. There's like folks who are, are in high school. Yeah, what are they called? What are those people who are millennials called? <laughs> That's such a lazy name. I hope they come up what with something they, else, but okay. What are the kids calling themselves? <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, yeah. So they, um, I mean, they had been doing work through the primaries, really, Um here in New York, they um, helped out on a lot of sort of state legislative races, and they endorsed a number of candidates um, based on their support for um, sort of ambitious climate policy. And sort of their approach uh, from the beginning had always been, you know, we need sort of people in office who are willing to push this. We need sort of allies if we're going to kind of do the thing and, and, and keep emissions to the level that they need to be in order to avert total catastrophe. And at the same time, to have the sort of outside strategy of pushing people um, once they're there um, and supporting them to take the most ambition, ambitious action possible. And so it was in kind of that vein that they um, held this action in sort of the, the first days that new members of Congress were in town in D.C. And one um, of the new members of Congress joined them. And one of the new members of Congress joined them, yeah, um, Alexander Ocasio-Cortez. Um, and so I, for this piece, spoke to spoke to her staff and, and sort of the way they, they described it was, you know, we knew we were sort of taking a huge risk. We know this would be something that would uh, certainly cause a lot of buzz, but that it made you know more sense to do it than not to do it. I mean, she ran very self-consciously as a movement candidate, as someone who was in touch with and inspired by and, and kind of 
working with with social movements. And so this is, you know, her first like day or two on the job came and um, attended sit in 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 Nancy Pelosi's office calling for a Green New Deal and specifically in response to this idea flooded by Nancy Pelosi to recreate a committee which had existed uh, years ago around, I think it was started in about 2011 or 2010, maybe before that. I would want to like check those dates. Um, But in response to this proposal to recreate a committee which had existed sort of prior to Waxman Markey, the cap and trade fight, um, which failed horrendously in 2010. And this committee would be tasked with, you know, looking at the problem Um, building sort of support for the idea that we should maybe do something and at some point draft a bill about climate change, which, uh, you know, was rightfully sort of called out as being an incomplete plan um, and and not, you know, really a plan at all. And so this was a sort of attempt to make that something with teeth. And what was Pelosi's response? This obviously is not a conventional way that a freshman communicates with the party leader. Totally unconventional. And um, I mean, the press freaked out. Like, I I think talking to folks in Sunrise, like, I think they were pretty taken aback by just how quickly this sort of caught fire. And yeah, I mean, I think it was, you know, all of these things sort of at once. I mean, the the action itself was very powerful. And I think the, the, the image of having sort of a freshman congresswoman coming in and, 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 you know, breaching decorum in this, in this way. And I don't, you know, Nancy Pelosi, um, to her credit, has not been like, uh, you know, has, has not been the most publicly sort of opposed to this plan. There are, I mean, obviously Republicans, but also Democrats who have been really sort of coming out. I mean, just just yesterday, we got news that, that Steny Hoyer wants to hire, I think that's maybe how it's pronounced, um, wants to, um, you know, take away the subpoena power of this, of, of this committee. And, you know, other people saying, you know, we shouldn't have a committee at all. Um, there should be sort of, you know, this should take place within the established process that we have. So, yeah, I think the the, the sort of uh, backlash, certainly within the party, has come from places other than, than Pelosi's office. Well, it's been this kind of new generation of young left women entering the House who have been at the forefront of pushing the Green New Deal. And the establishment Democrats see this proposal to create a select committee to look into what a Green New Deal would look like as they see it in kind of like real politic terms, maybe not incorrectly, (laughs) as something that challenges their authority because as senior members of the party establishment, they control all of the the committees that legislation would normally move through. Yeah. And and it's a it's a threat to their power. And also, you know, one of the provisions of the resolution is that nobody who takes money from the fossil fuel industry campaign contributions from the fossil fuel industry can participate, which for many Democrats is a, is a big problem, <laughs> who do take a lot of money from fossil fuel interests. And so I think there, you know, that is, I don't think anybody has like come out and said, I oppose this because I can't bring the fossil fuel industry's opinion <laughs> into it. Um, but I think that's certainly sort of in the, in the minds of some, some people. So one of the key things that the Green New Deal does is to connect economic justice and the green energy transition, which are two things that conservatives, the fossil fuel industry, and the Trump administration have cynically but all too often successfully pitted against each other. Can you explain a little bit about the the politics of the Green New Deal stitching those two things together as things that go together rather than are opposed? I mean, I think the most basic point to make here, right, is that we really can't get this done. We really can't cap emissions to the degree that we need to without without the type of things that are, you know, pretty endemic to any any version of a Green New Deal. So, you know, for instance, millions of people need to be involved with the work of transitioning over from fossil fuels. And that's work, you know, across sectors of society, both kind of encouraging the types of work that aren't sort of bound up in, in, you know, carbon intensive supply chains and, you know, doing the sort of classical things we think of as, as being part of, part of the suite of a, a policy. So, you know, transforming our grid system to be able to accept energy rather than just distribute it, building up massive amounts of solar and wind energy infrastructure, doing a lot of like research and development to uh, 
um, encourage a transition in really kind of hard to hard to transition sectors. That's one part of it is simply just like there needs to be a lot of work to get this done. That work can be very good and well paid. Um, Indeed, much of it like needs to take place in sectors which are already heavily unionized, which already offer very high paid work, things like construction, for instance. Uh, I think the other part of it comes from a sort of political calculation um, that people don't want to pay more um, to do this. And there's no, I mean, there's, we can talk more about like why there's you know no reason why anybody's life should should get harder um, as a as a result of of transitioning away from fossil fuels and, and building a low carbon world. But I think it's you know as we're seeing in France right now, right? Like people are are very uh, aware <laughs> of what they're being screwed over um, and when things simply aren't fair. Yeah, it's pre- it's precisely the sort of neoliberal pseudo environmentalism of people like Macron that facilitates the conservative effort to pit the environment and people's economic interests against one another because the policies of people like Macron literally manifest those two things as 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 pitted against one another no exactly and and i i think you know the whole narrative around a carbon tax which i fully expected coming into the new congress would be the sort of center of the debate about climate policy, just because it's been so sort of hegemonic in in the debate in this country for so long. And seeing a carbon tax or some sort of price on carbon as the answer to climate change. And it sort of comes from this like really, um, you know, utopian free market fantasy that if we just kind of tweak the prices enough, if we just kind of send the right market signals to the biggest polluters in the world, the most powerful corporations in the world, that they will change their business model to effectively liquidate themselves, which is what the science is very clear needs to happen, is that, you know, within within the next 50 years at the absolute, absolute latest, um, coal, oil, and natural gas should not be in our, our energy system, and likely much, much sooner than that. A sort of odd calculation for them to make on a, you know, scientific level, like on a sense, in the sense that this needs to happen very quickly, and, and traditionally market signals are not great ways to make things happen very quickly. And in a political sense, I mean, what we're seeing right now is people like are rightfully very angry when they're being asked to pay for something that you know is not making all that much of a difference in emissions. Um, and when some of the biggest polluters, like the like Total, for instance, in France, pays virtually no taxes um, and is allowed to sort of operate scot-free. And so, you know, there, there's a sort of basic injustice that's embedded into asking, you know, everyday people to pay to pay more for something. And that has, you know, relatively little benefit for the for the planet. And so the politics of the Green New Deal are precisely the opposite of neoliberal climate politics. It's a it's a politics of abundance rather than of scarcity. Totally, yeah. And it's the kind of neoliberal approach to climate change, which again has been like super, super dominant, particularly in the US but other places, is that everybody has to sacrifice a little bit. You know, all of us individually have to give up something um, because our individual choices are what's feeding this crisis. Our decision to take vacations, our decision to eat hamburgers, our decision to use plastic straws, this is the core of the problem. So, you know, such a deeply kind of neoliberal framework. And when a new Green New Deal says is that actually we have all of these resources available to us that are being hoarded right now by very few people. Um, and if we simply invest them in smarter places, actually invest them in most of the people, not, you know, the 1%, uh, then, you know, we, we can get this done. Um, that, 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 that climate change is not an issue of sacrifice, that it's an issue of investment and um, distributing society's resources fairly. But Kate, under eco-socialism, the real question is, will there be jobs in the think tank sector for people like Neera Tanden? <laughs> well, you know, I, I, I think um, Neera Tanden can absolutely have a job, be, whatever, whatever that may be. But the American Job Center is, is certainly open um, to finding her a placement that will fill her days. That is a huge relief to hear. So... Um, <laughs> Let's talk about some of the key components of a just green transition. Concretely, a Green New Deal will require a massive electrification project that will also require a transformation in how electricity is produced and distributed. 
explain what needs to be done on that front because I don't think I think people tend to think that we need to change how energy is produced, but not not so much this electrification part. Explain what needs to be done, and given how land intensive renewables are, how this might affect rural America in particular. Basically, the problem right now is that a huge amount of uh, activity in the economy is powered by combustion, um, combustion-based activity. So, you know, your car, for instance, is, is the best example of this. Um, and so cars, heating, any number of things um, are not sort of on the grid. So about 20% of all activity right now um, is, is on the grid system of, you know, what we, what we use in our everyday lives and, and it's shockingly low because we think of electricity as like the basis of industrial civilization right right but so much does not does not rely on it and so in order for to actually be able to move to renewables in a serious way uh, about 60 percent of activity needs to be needs to be on the grid and so that's like a huge sort of r&d project to figure out you know how to do that. I mean, there are answers for a lot of sectors. Um, some sectors will be harder, kind of as I mentioned in the beginning. And, and that's that's sort of a, a, one of the biggest lifts, I think, of a Green New Deal um, and the, one of the bigger, bigger infrastructural challenges, in part because, you know, if we like were somehow to do that today, if like overnight we were able to like go from 20 to 60 percent of activity happening on the grid, I don't think the grid can handle that. Um, <laughs> and so there needs to be changes on on that front as, as well. And the r- rural America. There's sort of interesting debates, and I think this is um, something which I personally am excited to see as part of a Green New Deal conversation, just about you know how we make sort of decisions about energy planning, right? Like the history of energy planning in the U.S. has been hugely sort of exclusionary. I mean, even if you look at kind of the history of the New Deal, right? Like look at the TVA. Right, the TVA. Um, so, you know, I think there are interesting kind of sort of lessons to draw from things like the TVA and from um, things like the Rural Electrification Administration. Um, but uh, which, you know, I think the REA was, was certainly more um, more democratic than the sort of like big dam projects that we've yeah, The TVA is um, like, we're flooding your land and uh, you've got to go. <laughs> Right, right. And so you can imagine like a 21st century equivalent of that, which is like, we're going to erect 10,000 wind turbines in your backyard. um, And we don't give a damn who cares about it. So I think, you know, there is sort of an opposition um, already to wind turbines and and not just the US, but around the country and and sort of questions of planning. and, And, you know, I think, Figuring out, you know, what does it look like to do this in a way that will not provoke kind of massive public backlash from like a very utilitarian point of view of how do we actually scale this up without like really sort of pissing people off. Um, And reducing opposition to NIMBYism is neither accurate entirely nor helpful pragmatically. Again, I I think there's a there's a sort of bigger question, you know, as like folks on the left and folks who are committed to democracy of like, yeah, there's there should be democratic decision making to decide kind of what what these developments look like. And it's it's not as if we don't have a tough plan. It's not as if we don't have the capacity to do that, but also, you know, avoiding some of the mistakes of the original New Deal in, you know, we don't want to flood people's land, quote unquote, or, you know, actually, like, we don't, you know, want to build up massive amounts of sort of like authoritarian hydropower projects as, as part of a Green New Deal, either. Urban policy is also key here. But merely living in cities isn't enough, nor, of course, is just buying organic food or smoking locally sourced weed. We really have to change the inequalities that really fundamentally structure how we live in cities. What does a green city look like? Right. Yeah. And yeah. And I think there, there, as you brought up, and as I kind of mentioned in the piece, there is a sort of myth that just by virtue of living in a city, people are living more low carbon lives. Living in a city and using the right kind of straws. <laughs> and using the right kind of straws, buying the right things at Whole Foods what have you. Um, so what, I mean, what's green about the city is kind of a working class infrastructure. And so that's accessible, affordable public transit. That is dense, affordable housing. Uh, just because housing is somewhat dense doesn't mean it's totally low carbon. Daniel Aldana Cohen, a sociologist, has done some really fantastic research looking at the kind of 
long um, carbon footprint of the wealthiest New Yorkers. And so um, folks who live in, you know, high rise buildings in, in Midtown Manhattan, for instance, you know, well, we might think of that as being somewhat like low carbon because it's so um, packed together. Folks are, you know, taking the train, like walking to work, whatever. Actually, like, the types of things those people consume are just so much more wasteful um, and so much more carbon intensive. And so if you think about, you know, those are the same people who are um, taking business trips four times a month across the Atlantic um, in first class airplanes, um, which are, you know, to the extent that air travel at all is usually carbon intensive, first class air travel is like the worst you can you can do on that front. Or, you know, taking private jets, as like people like Michael Bloomberg uh, frequently do, who, who paint themselves as, as kind of climate heroes. If you really kind of paint that long picture of like, what is it that people are actually, how are people living their lives? Multi-million dollar uh, townhomes in the West Village are far worse for the planet um, than, you know, rent-stabilized affordable housing um, in places like my neighborhood in Crown Heights. And Cohen says that New York City public housing could become the largest green city in the world. Totally. And I, you know, I, I kind of allude to this in the piece, but like in, um, in places like Vienna, for instance, which has a long history of sort of beautiful, um, beautiful social housing, that's very carbon intensive and it, it both is, or that's very non-carbon intensive. And that's because both people are, you know, living close together, living near trains and things like that. Um, other sorts of infrastructure. It's also, you know, in part because uh, something like that or something like NYCHA, you can actually make these sort of planning decisions fairly easily about how to, you know, erect a massive solar farm kind of on the on the roofs or, or something like that. And so, yeah, it's it's very easy to imagine that happening. I mean, harder now because I think NYCHA is sitting in 17 billion dollars of debt potentially um, is like horribly underfunded and neglected, but the infrastructure is sort of there for it to be um, something so much better. Well, let's talk more about the role of government. What's proposed is in fact a lot bigger and more comprehensive than the original New Deal. And it certainly wouldn't include the racial inequities of FDR programs that were ultimately shaped by the veto power of segregationist Southern conservatives. But the New Deal is probably the only thing in the American political lexicon that can really convey how big this needs to be. And I think your piece also suggests that the combined fight against the depression and fascism is perhaps the closest thing we have to a historical antecedent that helps us understand the scale of the enemy that we face or the challenge that we face, because it requires this massive transformation in what we think government has the capacity to do. And that's something that's been just depressingly absent during the neoliberal decades. I mean, just look at how big a deal it was. I think it was just last year for New York City to, you know, for the MTA to build a single new subway line, an extension of the Q train that added three stops. This was treated as though it was a world historic public infrastructure project. I mean, to start off, I I, I just want to say that I think a lot of people who are actively pushing for this are sort of extremely cognizant of just how painful the history of the the New Deal was for a lot of communities, particularly the communities of color, who were excluded from a lot of the reforms. So in some ways, it's kind of the best fit, um, but not, you know, certainly the New Deal is not um, the kind of de facto model. But I, I think what you were getting at is that that combined with the mobilization around World War II is just like kind of the best, the closest we can get to sort of imagining uh, just how big this this transformation needs to be. Um, and that's, as you mentioned, sort of particularly true after decades and decades of living through neoliberalism. But I don't think it's obviously massive. Like this is obviously a massive amount of work and I, I don't want to sort of undercount that. But I do think it's true. And I think the, the New Deal is actually instructive for this, that, you know, the state can learn new tricks, can like learn new new ways of being. So there's these great sort of stories from um, just after the depression and kind of the last days of the Hoover administration. And he is just sort of beside himself, like figuring out what to do um, and has really no idea just because, you know, there wasn't really a welfare state at the time. 
And he just, as many people today believe, it was just so sort of committed to this idea that the sort of business elites could be made to act in society's best interest. And so he spends a lot of time sort of coaxing corporate executives, basically, to like give more to charity. One of the first like big spending programs after after the depression hits during the Hoover administration is like an ad campaign encouraging people to donate to charity because that was the sort of whole infrastructure that was set up for relief at the time. And so, you know, obviously that was not adequate and sort of people saw that social movements saw that um, people who were being kicked out of their jobs saw that and, and Roosevelt saw that And you know, I think as, as cynical a calculation as any any politician can, can kind of make, realize that the state really needed to step in, do something sort of massive and do something that it had never done before. And in that, I mean, the New Deal was really kind of a license to experiment with government. It was a license to do things um, that, you know, there wasn't a huge precedent for that didn't know, they didn't know would succeed. And, you know, many experiments that were tried in the New Deal did not work. And it was kind of a trial and error period. And I think that's, Something that I, I think is important if we if we are thinking about the New Deal as kind of a precedent for that, um, just you know how much of it is not sort of overly prescribed at the beginning. I mean, I think setting good plans in place is really important, but there is an extent to which it is about making um, a massive amount of resources possible to you know do a little bit of experimentation. That's something that's a little hard to, to wrap our heads around in 2018. Um, and the other thing about World War II in particular, and which you also brought up, is this question of sort of economic planning, which sounds so sort of foreign today. But, you know, during during the, the war mobilization, I mean, the United States effectively had a centrally planned economy. Um, by the end of the war, about a quarter of all manufacturing in the U.S. was nationalized. And through the war effort, like the war production board and sort of associated bodies controlled prices, they controlled wages in sort of key sectors. And that, you know, was done with kind of massive public support. I mean, remains to be seen if we will have the kind of public support for an energy transition that there was for um, fighting World War II. Um, But that was basically just the precondition of all this happening. Um, And, you know, very rarely in either of these cases was the question asked in a, in a kind of mass way and, and by anyone, you know, other than the sort of extreme fringe right of how do we pay for it? I mean, there was an understanding that these were crises that we needed to address urgently. And so we did. Yeah. And if some if some other country was doing what climate change or if some group of Islamists was doing what climate change is uh, doing to the United States, we'd have there'd be no debate over paying to fight it. Totally. Yeah. If, if any country was or a collection of countries was threatening to create an economic collapse in the United States by the end of the century, um, we would, you know, be, be no holds barred um, going up against them. I'm Naomi Klein. You're listening to The Dig as well you should be, and you can support them on Patreon.com. This episode of The Dig is brought to you by our listeners who support us at Patreon.com. And by Verso Books, which has loads of great left-wing titles, perfect for dig listeners like you. One that you might like is Betraying Big Brother, The Feminist Awakening in China by Leda Hong Fincher. On the eve of International Women's Day in 2015, the Chinese government arrested five feminist activists and jailed them for 37 days. The Feminist Five became a global cause celeb, with Hillary Clinton speaking out on their behalf and activists inundating social media with hashtag free the five messages. But the five are only symbols of a much larger feminist movement of civil rights lawyers, labor activists, performance artists, and online warriors prompting an unprecedented awakening among China's educated urban women. In Betraying Big Brother, journalist and scholar Leda Hong Fincher argues that the popular, broad-based movement poses the greatest challenge to China's authoritarian regime today. Through interviews with the Feminist Five and other leading Chinese activists, Hong Fincher illuminates both the difficulties they face and their joy of betraying Big Brother, as one of the Feminist Five wrote of the defiance she felt during her detention. Tracing the rise of a new feminist consciousness now finding expression through the Me Too movement 
and describing how the communist regime has suppressed the history of its own feminist struggles. Betraying Big Brother is a story of how the movement against patriarchy could reconfigure China and the world. Betraying Big Brother, The Feminist Awakening in China by Leda Hong Fincher, out now from Verso Books. If the Green New Deal, looking ahead, does find itself becoming a new litmus test of sorts for mainstream progressivism and we see the Democratic Party center of gravity shifting towards it, like we've seen with Medicare for All, for example, which I'm guessing is kind of the strategic orientation of of the people pushing the Green New Deal right now. What kind of counterattack can we expect from the fossil fuel industry, the political right, and also bipartisan deficit hawks? And what will we need to do to build the power and deploy the power to crush that opposition? It's interesting because I think we haven't really seen the fossil fuel industry push back so hard against this yet. Um, I think that fight is really to come. And if the committee is created, I think we'll be sort of ever present and and a much bigger factor in politics than it is even today. Um, I mean, I think the the best place to look for this is kind of what happened in the midterms. Um, So in Colorado, there was a ballot measure that would have barred fossil fuel companies from drilling within 2,500 feet of schools, businesses, homes, um, and other kind of protected areas. That, you know, that's sort of a common sense reform, right? Like you wouldn't want fracking within like a half mile of a school. Um, The chemicals involved are hugely toxic. Um, The air quality is much worse. Children are much more vulnerable to sort of these these types of pollutants. The industry poured... You you wouldn't want that unless you were a natural gas drilling company. Exactly. And that's, that's why they poured $40 million into beating this measure, which was, you know, pretty common sense and and far, far, far tamer than what a Green New Deal would entail. In Washington state, there was sort of a a low carbon tax, carbon fee on the ballot that also included um, a lot of pretty uh, impressive uh, Green New Deal style investment. And they spent, the industry spent 13, 30 million dollars, 13 million was spent by BP um, alone. alone. Wow. Yeah. Um, $30 million trying to fight that. And so even these fights, which have been measures a fraction as ambitious as a Green New Deal, have prompted over, you know, in the hundreds of millions of dollars of pushback from from the industry already. And the industry, much of the industry is on the record conceding that they're OK with the carbon tax, yet they spend all this money to, to fight it. Right. I mean, they're OK with a carbon tax in theory. And then when one actually comes along, they, they spend millions of dollars, tens of millions of dollars, and hundreds of millions of dollars in, in some cases fighting it. Um, so how to, cr- how to crush them? It is really hard. <laughs> they have like virtually unlimited resources, uh, can just sort of spend their way. I mean, I think one thing which which should be pretty obvious and, and I think is, is sort of embodied in the, in the resolution for a Green New Deal is that the fossil fuel industry does not deserve free speech. Um, they do not deserve to be able to pollute our politics in the same way that they pollute our environment. And the fact that they're kind of an ever-present force, not just in federal politics, but also in state-level politics, um, that they're reliable donors to both Republicans and to a, you know, to a much smaller extent, um, but still to a steady extent Democrats, is abhorrent. I mean, these these people are responsible for crimes against humanity, I would say, are sort of, you know, no, like willingly pursuing activities that they know and have known for several decades in the case of companies like Exxon and Shell um, will lead to hundreds of millions of people dying. They are sentencing hundreds of millions of people to death every day that they continue their business model. And so I think there's no, absolutely no place for the fossil fuel industry in this transition. And so any any sort of talk uh, of, of, of bringing in the fossil fuel industry, sort of giving them a seat at the table, um, which is, you know, uh, sounds sort of crazy to me um, as someone who thinks about this a lot, but is uh, a kind of accepted part of things like, you know, the UN climate talks. And I think the talking point that the fossil fuel industry deserves a voice in, in what this looks like 
the idea that they deserve a voice in what this looks like is equivalent to the idea that the Nazis deserved a voice in <laughs> in how the war against fascism was prosecuted. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, they are the problem. They are the problem and and um, should be persona non grata around the world. I mean, I <laughs> have been, I think I'm of the opinion that, that they should be tried in the Hague for, for crimes against humanity for you know, willfully continuing to do things which will, which will kill, you know, many millions of people. Um, but you know, that's not such an operational ask for the green new deal necessarily. Um, but I think that, you know, there needs to be an effort to dramatically limit their, their power. And I think one of the, one of the proposals, which has not been talked about as much in relationship to a green new deal, but that could be, Allied in some way is the idea of sort of buying out fossil fuel industry. So some folks at the Next System Project um, have done some research about what it would look like to actually have the government become a majority majority shareholder in uh, U.S.-based fossil fuel companies and uh, essentially just buy them up and rapidly scale down their business model. And I think that's, you know, the... Using eminent domain powers or... Yeah, I think so. I'm I'm a little less clear on the on, on all of the details for that, but I'm in a domain. I think quantitative easing has been talked about as an option. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think the yeah the continued existence of the fossil fuel industry is it at loggerheads with the continued existence of humanity, and so I think we have to treat them as as we would treat any company which is threatening to kill massive amounts of people. So politically speaking, this is something that. Ocasio-Cortez, Rashida Tlaib, Bernie Sanders are at the lead on. Now, Bernie Sanders would would hate it if I or another journalist asked him this question like this, but I'm going to ask you it. Does this suggest that this issue is going to be a defining position of the left poll in the Democratic primary in 2020? I certainly hope that a Green New Deal will be a defining poll of the primary field in 2020. And I think that's because it's a really useful litmus test, as much as people hate talking about litmus tests, because I think it really does embody so much of kind of what uh, is at the core of the fight for the Democratic Party. And so, right, like not being able to take donations from the fossil fuel industry, for instance, to participate in this, that is something which I think many politicians would not be totally comfortable with, um, but should absolutely be, be a litmus test. I mean, it should be morally abhorrent to take money from the fossil fuel industry um, in 2020. And so, you know, I think it establishes that, establishes the fact that we do need to make sort of massive investments that we can't be beholden to kind of deficit, deficit hawk talking points if we're going to do something about this. And just because like we need to do it, right? Like we're like running out of time in a very real sense. Um, We have about 12 years, according to the IPCC report, to start really dramatically shifting the economy away from fossil fuels. And so that's the um, governmental panel on climate change. Yes, yes. Who released a report recently um, outlining how to get to how to cap warming at 1.5 degrees Celsius. Right. And so like we actually just don't have the time to wait until 2024 um, to have this be a presidential talking point. I mean, climate change barely came up in the last primaries. Um, and so I think it will be, you know, to the credit of, of people like Bernie Sanders, if he runs in, in 2020, to really be actively pushing for that to be what I hope the defining issue of 2020. Use it the way he used Medicare for all in 2016. Yeah, use it the way he used Medicare for all and the way he used sort of his like, his speeches against the 1%, his speeches against, um, you know, the unequal share of wealth in society, which were so sort of powerful for so many people. Climate change is that fight. Climate change is, you know, a very small group of people making life much harder for the majority of people. I mean, it is like the 1% versus the 99%. Um, And so I think having it be both the sort of like positive vision and also having it be the sort of populist, populist vision for any 2020 candidate. Briefly, I want to talk about the international context because obviously global warming is a global issue, both in terms of its impacts and solutions to the problem. You just returned from the UN climate talks in Poland, known as COP24. Mm -hmm. Uh, What was the purpose of the meeting and what were the U.S. representatives up to there? You reported that Trump's tack, even though Obama signed on to Paris Accords 
onto the Paris Accords while Trump has started the process of pulling the U.S. out haven't been so different. Right. Yeah. And, and I, I think looking at the climate talks is um, sort of infuriating, but kind of a helpful window into how just how sort of flawed the climate debate is. I mean, both in the U.S., but I think this also plays out in different ways around the world. So the idea of COP24 um, was to come up with a rule book to enact the Paris Agreement. So the Paris Agreement was signed in 2015 and agreed to then. And this is sort of manual for how, how that gets rolled out um, in countries around the world. And so what's been so interesting after Trump's election is that there has been this narrative that, you know, he's pulling out of the Paris Agreement. He can't actually do that until 2020. But that Trump is just sort of this bad actor on the world stage. And if only we could get back to what climate politics was like and what climate diplomacy looked like before before Trump was elected, like during Obama, things would sort of get better. But to talk to essentially any negotiator from global South countries to climate vulnerable countries is, you know, gives a very, a very different picture, which is that the U.S. has been historically a, a very obstructionist force in in these talks. It's not a, a sort of monolithic thing, right? Like the, the U.S. has been a, a helpful voice on some, on some issues, but for instance, on questions of historical responsibility of making countries who have been most responsible for, uh, for carbon emissions, who have built sort of prosperous economies on carbon intensive fuels, have reliably sort of since the start of the United Nations framework on climate change process, tried to just sort of emit any any mention of that from uh, from any sort of operative text, and so you know we saw that we saw that again this year with the U.S. team of negotiators sort of pursuing the things that they've been pursuing for a very long time. So getting historical responsibility sort of written out of the Paris rulebook, getting any sort of obligation to finance mitigation, adaptation, and uh, what's known as loss and damage, which is sort of paying paying countries to rebuild after you know they experience the sort of worst worst impacts of the climate crisis, and compensating the global South for forgoing the sort of fossil fuel intensive development that the global North has so benefited from. Yeah, and you know, creating. I mean, this isn't loss and damage in particular, but I think part of the idea behind financing is to create actually a path to to low carbon development um, that can you know provide people a a better way of life that the many countries in the global north have fueled with with coal, oil, and natural gas, coal, you know, and oil in particular. It is just sort of wild to watch like the conversation about the the climate talks play out, which isn't much, right? Like, I don't think COP twenty four actually got a ton of coverage, but the coverage that I saw, especially from the American press, sort of talks about the sort of two faces of the Trump administration and that, um, you know, they they held this sort of side event where they praised the wonders of coal and uh, making coal more efficient and uh, continuing to sort of export and bring fossil fuels to the world. So that was like the one sort of horrible face. And then there's these sort of, you know, mild-mannered uh, negotiators just trying to get get their jobs done and, and, and sort of do do the good work of making the Paris Agreement happen. It's so misguided. And I, I don't want to say that like every one of the U.S. negotiators are these sort of nefarious people who um, are out to sort of undermine the Paris Agreement. I don't think that's true, right? Like I think there is, there are, you know, real qualitative differences between the Trump administration team and the, the U.S. negotiators who are, who are career career sort of, you know, State Department employees um, or, you know, other other sorts of, of, of federal employees. But the idea that one side is good and one side is bad just sort of breaks down. I mean, Todd Stern, who was a, a negotiator for the lead negotiator for the U.S. under Obama, he used the NSA to spy on other <laughs> other countries' negotiating teams at Copenhagen in 2009. Um, the U.S. has had people kicked off of other countries' negotiating teams when they've spoken out too strongly in support of developing countries um, and against against the U.S. So, you know, I think that the U.S. has a long and sort of mostly very ugly history of these talks, and um, that has certainly continued under Trump. But I don't think I don't think it's accurate at all to say that Trump has sort of soured the image of the U.S. entirely and that, that he has been responsible for all of that 
um, on the world stage. It seems like the point is that Trump is, of course, different and worse than Obama, both in particular issues and generally speaking, but that it's important to examine and remember the serious problems with Obama's policies if we're to understand the limits of conventional liberal approaches and how utterly insufficient they are compared to what must be done to avert catastrophe. Better than Trump is not good enough. Totally. And it's also useful cover, right? I mean, I I don't want to sort of say that everything that the U.S. negotiating team is pushing for is evil. I don't I don't think that's true. I think the U.S. negotiating team is is pushing for some perfectly fine things um, and has done good work on some fronts. But having Trump sort of in the conversation of the climate talks, having him be so blustering, so sort of such an obvious bad actor actually does give a lot of cover for the folks who have been pursuing an agenda that's not not all that different um, for for some time. You know, I think more so than it than it gives them cover to do other things. I think it just sort of shuts down any sort of critical evaluation of what the U.S. is doing there. I mean, if all of the focus is on sort of Trump uh, administration officials parroting fossil fuel industry talking points at an event that has basically no effect on the outcome of the negotiations. It doesn't. Like that that side event that they hosted had effectively no bearing on, on what actually came out. It just doesn't leave room to actually, you know, have a real conversation about, you know, what is the U.S. pushing for? What is helpful about this? What's hugely unhelpful about this? Where are they being obstructive? Where are they being constructive? It just, you know, shuts down the possibility that we can actually have that conversation um, because Trump just sort of takes out, takes all the air out of the room. My final question is, DSA climate activist Sidney Gazarian recently tweeted about the IPCC report, quote, I'm finally reading the IPCC report summary for policymakers, and I am 99.999% sure that science concludes we need eco-socialism. Agree or disagree? <laughs> largely agree. Yeah, I, I would largely agree. I think the slight complication I would pose to that is that I don't think we are going to dismantle capitalism and build up a worker-owned productive apparatus in time to save the planet. So, you know, a Green New Deal, I think, will involve some aspects of capitalism. It will involve... Um, we need to embrace social democratic tools as part of a the road to wherever we're going. Sure. And just, you know, just be sort of properly materialist about it, right? And that, you know, I think there are a ways, there are ways for the Green New Deal to be what the New Deal was in a sense, which was a kind of tactical move to save capitalism as the threat of socialism moved on the horizon uh, and and prevent that, right? And so I think, you know, there will be aspects of that which are true. There will be sort of defensive maneuvers on the part of, of politicians to kind of protect protect things from from something more ambitious and, you know, more quote unquote radical. But I also think, you know, if we if we're, you know, willing to sort of come to the table on that, and I think there there are ways for the Green New Deal to be a kind of non-reformist reform in the sense that sort of Andre Gores talks about, right? And something that is really building toward a much deeper societal transformation that makes many, many people's lives better and sort of changes the sort of terrain on which politics operates. So I think the Green New Deal in that sense is much more than just a suite of policy packages. It is a way to kind of to remake society if that, you know, quote, <laughs> ends up on Breitbart or something. I don't know. But, you know, I think that the Green New Deal is sort of much bigger than the sum of its parts. And it is it is kind of a way to to think through a, a more a more democratic society that totally necessary if if we are, as we as science is telling us we need to do, to kind of upend the most powerful industry the world has ever known, um, which is the fossil fuel industry. I think we are, are, are sort of working toward an eco-socialist future, but I don't think it's a it's a sort of clean A to B to get there. And I think, you know, the Green New Deal will involve a, a road through through social democracy, certainly. Kate Aronoff, thank you very much as always. Thank you.
Kate Aronoff is a contributing writer at The Intercept, covering climate change in American politics, an editor of a forthcoming anthology about democratic socialism in America, and the author of a forthcoming book about climate change, tentatively titled The New Denialism. Thank you for listening to The Dig from Jacobin Magazine. As Marx once said after noting that capitalist production only develops the technique and the degree of combination of the social forces of production by simultaneously undermining the original sources of all wealth, the soil and the worker. While other podcasts have only interpreted the world in various ways, our point is to change it. We're posting new episodes every week, sometimes twice, sometimes once. The Dig was produced by Alex Lewis. Music by Jeffrey Brodsky. Our communications coordinator is Logan Dreher. Follow us on Twitter at The Dig Radio, and please do find us wherever you get podcasts and subscribe. If it's on iTunes, you can leave us a nice review. Those reviews help introduce us to new listeners. What also does that is you telling your friends about the show. Please make propaganda for us. And do find us at patreon.com slash the dig and make a monthly contribution to help keep this show up and running. Even a few bucks is a huge help. Thank you.